The following is a special documentary episode of The Week in Doubt. My name is Alistair Crowley, because that I am holy. My enemies say Crowley and wish to treat me foully. One variation of a rhyme Crowley himself was supposedly fond of employing, popularized by the late Robert Anton Wilson. His name has become synonymous with the occult, a dark pop icon who has influenced the likes of experimental filmmaker Kenneth Anger, as well as some of the biggest names in rock music history. The Rolling Stones, David Bowie, and Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page. His likeness even haunts the cover of the legendary Beatles album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. To many occult enthusiasts, he is a misunderstood pioneer of the mystical arts. To the God-faring, he is a loathsome and satanic boogeyman, a blasphemous degenerate, one of the wickedest men to ever live. The so-called wickedest man in the world, the Great Beast 666, Alistair Crowley, was born Edward Alexander Crowley after his father. On October 12, 1875, at 30 Clarendon Square, Royal Leamington Spa, Warwickshire, England. In the prelude to his autobiography entitled The Confessions, Crowley styles himself as the work's audio hagiographer, a hagiography being the account of the life of a saint. And as with any traditional account of a saint's life, we have to pause to wonder just how much is truth and how much is fiction or embellishment. For instance, take Crowley's account of his own birth. He bore on his body the three most important distinguishing marks of a Buddha. He was tongue-tied, and on the second day of his incarnation, a surgeon cut the frenum lingui. He had also the characteristic membrane, which necessitated an operation for phimosis, some three lusters later, a luster being a period of five years. Lastly, he had upon the center of his heart four hairs curling from left to right in the exact form of a swastika. It should be noted that The Confessions was written prior to the Second World War, and at this point in time, for Crowley, the swastika would have simply been a symbol of Eastern mysticism. Crowley was born into considerable wealth. His grandfather had founded Crowley Ales, a successful brewing company. The success of the family business allowed Crowley's father an ample amount of free time, which he used to evangelize on behalf of the Plymouth Brethren, a fundamentalist religious movement which emphasized literal interpretation of scripture and the coming end times. In Crowley's own words, Edward Crowley was educated as an engineer, but never practiced his profession. He was devoted to religion and became a follower of John Nelson Darby, the founder of the Plymouth Brethren. The fact reveals a stern logician, for the sect is characterized by refusal to compromise. It insists on literal interpretation of the Bible as the exact words of the Holy Ghost. The underlying theory of life which was assumed in the household showed itself constantly in practice. It is strange that less than 50 years later, this theory should seem such fantastic folly as to require a detailed account. 
The universe was created by God 4004 BC. The Bible authorized version was literally true, having been dictated by the Holy Ghost himself to scribes incapable of even clerical errors. King James's translators enjoyed an equal immunity. It was considered unusual and therefore in doubtful taste to appeal to the original text. All other versions were regarded as inferior. The revised version in particular savored of heresy. John Nelson Darby, the founder of the Plymouth Brethren, being a very famous biblical scholar, had been invited to sit on the committee and had refused on the ground that some of the other scholars were atheists. The second coming of the Lord Jesus was confidently expected to occur at any moment. So imminent was it that preparations for a distant future, such as signing a lease or insuring one's life, might be held to imply lack of confidence of the promise, Behold, I come quickly. Crowley goes on to recount how, as a boy, he once discovered his house empty and worried he had missed the second coming and been left behind. One fine summer morning at Red Hill, the boy, now eight or nine, got tired of playing by himself in the garden. He came back to the house, and it was strangely still, and he got frightened. By some odd chance, everybody was either out or upstairs. But he jumped to the conclusion that the Lord had come, and that he had been left behind. It was an understood thing that there was no hope for people in this position. Apart from the second advent, it was always possible to be saved up to the very moment of death, but once the saints had been called up, the day of grace was finally over. Various alarums and excursions would take place as per the apocalypse, and then would come the millennium, when Satan would be chained for a thousand years and Christ reigned for that period over the Jews regathered in Jerusalem. The position of these Jews is not quite clear. They were not saved in the same sense as Christians had been, yet they were not damned. The millennium seemed to have been thought of as a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, but apparently it had nothing to do with eternal life. However, even this modified beatitude was not open to Gentiles who had rejected Christ. The child was consequently very much relieved by the reappearance of some of the inmates of the house, whom he could not imagine as having been lost eternally. The strict religious austerity of the brethren pervaded home life. There were no toys or gifts, most reading materials were restricted, and holidays such as Christmas were to be avoided due to their pagan associations. Crowley explains in the third person, Crowley remembers, as if he had seen it yesterday, the dining room in the ceremony of family prayers after breakfast. He remembers the order in which the family and the servants sat. A chapter of the Bible was read, each person present taking a verse in turn. But the interest of Alec, Crowley's childhood nickname, was in the sound of the names themselves. Enoch, Arphaxad, Mahalil. He often wonders whether this curious trait was symptomatic of his subsequent attainments in poetry, or whether it indicates the attraction which the Hebrew Kabbalah was to have for him later on. Crowley continues, The brethren rightly held Christmas to be a pagan festival. They sent no Christmas cards and destroyed any that might be sent to them by thoughtless or blaspheming goats. 
Not to disappoint Alec, who liked turkey, the family had that bird for lunch on the 24th and 26th of December. The idea was to avoid even the appearance of evil. There was nothing actually wrong in eating turkey on Christmas Day, for pagan idols are merely wood and stone the work of men's hands, but one must not let others suppose that one is complying with heathen customs. The young Crowley respected and admired his father, describing him as his hero and his friend, and would sometimes travel with him as he evangelized, and for a time he even desired to follow in his father's footsteps, harboring the goal of some day proselytizing for the brethren himself. But tragedy struck when Crowley's father died of cancer of the tongue, the boy was only 11. He writes, From the moment of the funeral, the boy's life entered an entirely new phase. The change was radical. Within three weeks of his return to school, he got into trouble for the first time. He does not remember for what offense, but only that his punishment was diminished on account of his bereavement. This was the first symptom of a complete reversal of his attitude to life in every respect. It seems obvious that his father's death must have been causally connected with it, but even so, the events remain inexplicable. The young Crowley resented his mother. He even goes as far as to write that he had always despised her. Despite his father's religious zeal, it had been Crowley's mother who enforced the strict doctrine of the brethren at home, and now he found himself thrust into the world of her and her family. Unhappy with his growing rebellious streak, his mother had supposedly taken to referring to him as the Beast, as in the Beast of the Apocalypse, no small thing given the Plymouth Brethren's emphasis on strict biblical literalism. Crowley writes, It is very important to mention that the mind of the child was almost abnormally normal. He showed no tendency to see visions, as even commonplace children often do. The Bible was his only book at this period, but neither the narrative nor the poetry made any deep impression on him. He was fascinated by the mysteriously prophetic passages, especially those in Revelation. The Christianity in his home was entirely pleasant to him, and yet his sympathies were with the opponents of heaven. He suspects obscurely that this was partly an instinctive love of terrors. The elders and the harp seemed tame. He preferred the dragon, the false prophet, the beast, and the scarlet woman as being more exciting. He reveled in the descriptions of torment. One may suspect, moreover, a strain of congenital masochism. He liked to imagine himself in agony. In particular, he liked to identify himself with the beast whose number is the number of a man, 603 score 6. One can only conjecture that it was the mystery of the number which determined this childish choice. It should be noted that despite the adoption of the moniker the Great Beast 666, the spirituality of Crowley's adulthood had very little, if anything, to do with the Christian devil. It was a mixture of Eastern spirituality, Buddhism and yoga, mixed with esoteric traditions such as Hermeticism, Rosicrucianism, and Kabbalah. In his own words, he has never been able to sympathize with any European religion or philosophy, and of Jewish or Mohammedan thought, he has assimilated only the mysticism of the Kabbalists and the Sufis. Even Hindu psychology, thoroughly as he studied it, never satisfied him wholly. 
As will be seen, Buddhism itself failed to win his devotion, but he found himself instantly at home with the I Ching in the writings of Lao Tzu. Strangely enough, Egyptian symbolism and magical practice made an equal appeal, incompatible as these two systems appear on the surface, the one being atheistic, anarchistic, and quietistic, the other theistic, hierarchical, and active. My emphasis on what would be later Crowley's seeming lack of literal belief in or allegiance to an actual Christian devil is in no way meant to sugarcoat his dark side or his penchant for sadism. There is one particularly disturbing account taken from his confessions in which he, in a common, detailed manner, describes a certain childhood experiment involving a cat. As an animal lover, I'm tempted to want to believe that this is just another example of Crowley's self-mythologizing. But given his later penchant for cruelty, there may be no reason to doubt the story. There is one amazing incident at the age of 14, as near as I can remember. I must premise that I have always been exceptionally tender-hearted, except to tyrants, for whom I think no tortures bad enough. In particular, I am uniformly kind to animals. No question of cruelty or sadism arises in the incident which I am about to narrate. I had been told a cat has nine lives. I deduced that it must be practically impossible to kill a cat. As usual, I became full of ambition to perform the feat. Perhaps through some analogy with the story of Hercules and the Hydra, I got it into my head that the nine lives of the cat must be taken more or less simultaneously. I therefore caught a cat, and having administered a large dose of arsenic, I chloroformed it, hanged it above the gas jet, stabbed it, cut its throat, smashed its skull, and, when it had been pretty thoroughly burnt, drowned it, and threw it out the window that the fall might remove the ninth life. In fact, the operation was successful. I had killed the cat. I remember that all the time I was genuinely sorry for the animal. I simply forced myself to carry out the experiment in the interest of pure science. After the death of his father, Crowley's family moved to Streatham in London to be close to his maternal uncle, Tom Bond Bishop, a prominent figure in religious and philanthropic circles in London. Crowley describes him thus, he devoted the whole of the spare time and energy to the propagation of the extraordinarily narrow, ignorant, and bigoted evangelicalism in which he believed, in feature resembling a shaven ape, in figure a dislocated dachshund. No more cruel fanatic, no meaner villain ever walked this earth. My father, wrong-headed as he was, had humanity and a certain degree of common sense. He had a logical mind and never confused spiritual with material issues. He could never have believed, like my uncle, that the cut and color of Sunday clothes could be a matter of importance to the deity. Crowley was sent to the Ebor Preparatory School in Cambridge, an exclusive institution for the children of Plymouth Brethren. It was run by the Reverend Henry Darcy Champney, who Crowley considered a sadist. The school employed the Bible in the birch, a strict regimen of prayer and Bible study mixed with corporal punishment. Crowley writes, I remember one licking I got on the legs because flogging the buttocks excites the victim's sensuality.
15 minutes prayer, 15 strokes of the cane. 15 minutes more prayer, 15 more strokes. And more prayer to top it. In retrospect, he blamed the stress and misery he experienced at Champney School for the albuminuria he was diagnosed with as a boy. In the confessions, he wrote of the harsh headmaster and his school thusly. The Reverend H. Darcy Champney, M.A. of Corpus Christi College, Cambridge, had come out of sect. He had voted at the parliamentary elections by crossing out the names of the candidates and writing, I vote for King Jesus. He had started a school for the Sons of Brethren at 51 Bateman Street, Cambridge. May God bite into the bones of men the pain of that hell on earth I have prayed often that by them it may be sowed with salt, accursed forever. May the maiden that passes it be barren, and the pregnant woman that beholdeth it abort. May the birds of the air refuse to fly over it. May it stand as a curse, as a fear, as a hate among men. May the wicked dwell therein. May the light of the sun be withheld therefrom, and the light of the moon not lighten it. May it become the home of the shells of the dead, and may the demons of the pit inhabit it. May it be accursed, accursed, accursed forever and ever. Crowley had been accused of quote-unquote corrupting another boy. In the confessions, he argues the claims were baseless and were just an example of the student body's rampant penchant for hurling accusations at one another in an attempt to save one's own skin. The punishment was a long period of deprivation. A boy named Glascott with insane taint told Mr. Champney that he had visited me, 12 years old, at my mother's house during the holidays. True so far, he had, and found me lying drunk at the bottom of the stairs. My mother was never asked about this, nor was I told of it. I was put into Coventry. No master, no boy might speak to me, or I to them. I was fed on bread and water. During play hours, I worked in the schoolroom. During work hours, I walked solitary round and round the playground. I was expected to quote-unquote confess the crime of which I was not only innocent, but unaccused. This punishment, which I believe criminal authorities would consider severe on a poisoner, went on for a term and a half. I was at last threatened with expulsion for my refusal to confess, and so dreadful a picture of the horrors of expulsion did they paint me, the guilty wretch shunned by his fellows, slinks on through life to a dishonored grave, etc., that I actually chose to endure my tortures and to thank my oppressor. I learned at last, through the intervention of my uncle in a lucid interval, what I was supposed to have done. I was said to have tried to corrupt Chamberlain, not our great patriotic statesman, Shifty Joe, but a boy. I was twelve years old and quite ignorant of all sexual matters till long after. Despite Crowley's negative characterization of his uncle, Tom Bond Bishop, he does credit him with rejecting Champney's accusations concerning the matter and choosing to remove him from the school. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the stern and oppressive world of the Plymouth Brethren, both in the form of his home life with his mother and under the heel of the Reverend Champney in Ebor, gave rise to a rebellious anti-Christian streak. 
The apparent discrepancy in the gospel narrative aroused no doubt in my mind as to the literal truth of either of the texts. Indeed, my falling away from grace was not occasioned by any intellectual qualms. I accepted the theology of the Plymouth Brethren. In fact, I could hardly conceive of the existence of people who might doubt it. I simply went over to Satan's side, and to this hour I cannot tell why, but I found myself as passionately eager to serve my new master as I had been to serve my old. I was anxious to distinguish myself by committing sin. Here again my attitude was extraordinarily subtle. It never occurred to me to steal or in any way to infringe the Decalogue. Such conduct would have been petty and contemptible. I wanted a supreme spiritual sin, and I had not the smallest idea how to set about it. There was a good deal of morbid curiosity among the saints about the quote-unquote sin against the Holy Ghost, which could never be forgiven. Nobody knew what it was. It was even considered rather blasphemous to offer any very positive conjecture on the point. The idea seems to have been that it was something like an ill-natured practical joke on the part of Jesus. This mysterious offense, which could never be forgiven, might be inadvertently committed by the greatest saint alive, with the result that he would be bowled out at the very gate of glory. Here was another impossibility to catch my youthful fancy. I must find out what that sin was and do it very thoroughly, for evidently my position was exceedingly precarious. I was opposed to an omnipotent God, and for all I knew to the contrary, he might have predestined me to be saved, no matter how much I disbelieved in Jesus, no matter how many crimes I piled up. He might get me in spite of myself. The only possibility of outwitting him was to bring him up against his own pledge that this particular particular sin should never be forgiven, with a certificate from the recording angel that I had duly done it. Another reason for young Crowley's removal from the school was his health. A physician had predicted that he would probably not make it to adulthood, given the severity of his albuminuria, a disorder symptomatic of kidney disease. Crowley was assigned a series of private tutors and put on a regimen of outdoor exercise in hopes the fresh air and physical activity would improve his health. The young Crowley developed a love for mountain climbing, and as an adult he would earn a reputation as a highly skilled and well-respected climber, a reputation which would later be lost following a tragedy on Mount Kanchenjunga in the Himalayas. Despite his penchant for getting into trouble at school, Crowley had proven to be a gifted pupil, excelling in both mathematics and literature. He also proved to be a skilled chess player, winning a number of local championships. A certain tutor, an Oxford man by the name of Archibald Douglas, helped facilitate the now-teenage Crowley's rebelliousness. Though Douglas called himself a Christian, he proved to be both a man and a gentleman. I presume that poverty had compelled the camouflage. From the moment that we were alone together, he produced a complete revolution in my outlook upon life, by showing me for the first time a sane, clean, jolly world worth living in. Smoking and drinking were natural. He warned me of the dangers of excess from the athletic standpoint. He introduced me to racing, billiards, betting, cards, and women. He told me how these things might be enjoyed without damaging oneself or wronging others. He put me up to all the tricks. He showed me the meaning of honor. I immediately accepted his standpoint and began to behave like a normal, healthy human being. 
The nightmare world of Christianity vanished at the dawn. I fell in with a girl of the theater in the first ten days at Torquay, and at that touch of human love the detestable mysteries of sex were transformed into joy and beauty. The obsession of sin fell from my shoulders into the sea of oblivion. I had been almost overwhelmed by the appalling responsibility of ensuring my damnation and helping others escape from Jesus. I found that the world was, after all, full of delightful damned souls, of people who accepted nature as she is, accepted their own place in nature and enjoyed it, fought mean and despicable things fairly and firmly whenever they met them. It was a period of boundless happiness for me. His sexuality now awakened, Crowley had found a new means by which to revolt against his Puritan upbringing. Having given an idea of the atmosphere of home, it should be intelligible that I was prepared to go out of my way to perform any act which might serve as a magical affirmation of my revolt. I was in fact restrained from developing my mind in any wholesome manner. This seems to be a reference to the restrictions placed on reading. Crowley would sneak books into the house under his clothes and read them in the water closet. I had no opportunity to think of anything but fighting fire with fire. A new parlor maid took it into her head to better herself by getting a stranglehold on the young master. I arranged to meet her on her evening out at a safe distance from Streatham, and we drove in a cab over to Hearn Hill, indulging in a mild flirtation on the way. On Sunday morning, however, I brought things to a point. I made an excuse for staying away from the morning meeting, got the girl into my mother's bedroom, and made my magical affirmation. The girl was promptly fired and thrown into the streets. According to Crowley, she would end up changing her name and resorting to prostitution. Despite Crowley's rebellious attraction to the Luciferian or Satanic, his developing worldview came across as secular or atheistic at times. He recounts a time when he sought to comfort an elderly family member he had taken a liking to, his grandmother's brother who had come to live with them. Shaking all over, he explained to me almost in tears that he was afraid he was not all right with Christ. I looked back almost with incredulity upon myself. It was not I that spoke. I answered him with brusque authority, though I was a peculiarly shy boy not yet sixteen. I told him plainly the whole thing was nonsense, that Christ was a fable, that there was no such thing as sin, and that he ought to thank his stars that he had lived his whole life away from the hypocritical crew of trembling slaves who believed in such nonsense. Then there's this passage in which he reflects on a poem he wrote on the passing of his aunt. Again I wrote a poem on the death of my Aunt Ada, which I thought good enough to include in my Songs of the Spirit, and is entirely irreproachable on the score of piety. It seems as if I possessed a theology of my own, which was to all intents and purposes Christianity. My Satanism did not interfere with it at all. I was trying to take the view that the Christianity of hypocrisy and cruelty was not true Christianity. I did not hate God or Christ, but merely the God and Christ of the people whom I hated. It was only when the development of my logical faculties supplied the demonstration that I was compelled to set myself in opposition to the Bible itself. It does not matter that the literature is sometimes magnificent and that in isolated passages the philosophy and ethics are admirable. 
The sum of the matter is that Judaism is a savage and Christianity a fiendish superstition. The following passage is also from the Confessions. It is not only illogical to pick out of the Gospels the texts which happen to suit one's own prejudices and then claim Christ as the supreme teacher, but his claims to preeminence are barred by the fact that all passages which are not fiendish superstition find parallels in the writings of earlier masters, the works of Lao Tzu, the Buddhist canon, the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, the Talmud, and the philosophy of many of the early Greeks, to say nothing of the sacred books of Egypt, contain the whole of the metaphysics, theology, and ethics to which modern enlightenment can assent. It is monstrous and mischievous for liberal thinkers to call themselves Christians. Their nominal adhesion delays the disruption of the infamous system which they condone. To declare oneself a follower of Jesus is not only to insult history and reason, but to apologize for the murders of Arius, Malinus, or Cranmer, the persecutors of science, the upholders of slavery, and the suppressors of all free thought and speech. It is very strange that I should have had no inkling of my tendency to mysticism and magic by means of any definite experience. It is true that from the beginning I held the transcendental view of the universe, but there was nothing to back it up in the way of experience. Most children have a touch of poetry and believe what I hate to call psychic phenomena, at least to the extent of fancying to see fairies or being scared of bugs by night. But I, although consciously engaged in the battle with the principalities and powers, never had the slightest hallucination of sense or any tendency to imagine things ghostly. I might have had an ambition to see the devil and talk things over with him, but I should have expected such communication to be either perfectly material or perfectly intellectual. I had no idea of nuances." When I eventually learned how to use my astral eyes and ears, there was no confusion. The other world had certain correspondences with our own, but it was perfectly distinct. In the fall of 1895, Crowley had begun a three-year course at Trinity College in Cambridge. Initially, he was to study moral philosophy, but with the approval of his personal tutor, switched to English literature. It was around this time that he changed his name to Alistair. Alistair Crowley, by the way. I have not yet explained how I came to have changed my name. For many years I had loathed being called Alec, partly because of the unpleasant sound and sight of the word, partly because it was the name by which my mother called me. Edward did not seem to suit me, and the diminutives Ted or Ned were even less appropriate. Alexander was too long and Sandy suggested toe hair and freckles. I had read in some book or other that the most favorable name for becoming famous was one consisting of a dactyl, followed by a spondy, as at the end of a hexameter, like Jeremy Taylor. Alistair Crowley fulfilled these conditions, and Alistair is the Gaelic form of Alexander. To adopt it would satisfy my romantic ideals." At university, Crowley had become president of the chess club, engaged in outdoor activities such as cycling and canoeing, but also spent an abundance of time exploring his love of literature. I bought all the classical authors. Whenever I found a reference of one to another, I hastened to order his works. I spent the whole of my time in reading. It was very rare that I got to bed before daylight. 
He was particularly taken with the works of author and explorer Richard Francis Burton and the poet Percy Bysshe Shelley. Crowley, a poet in his own right, published some of his own work while at Cambridge, including the infamous White Stains, a collection of erotic poetry which had to be published under an alias while traveling abroad in order to circumvent British obscenity laws. The following is from the poem Matilda. O large lips opening outward like a flower, to breathe upon my face that clings to thee. O wanton breasts that heave deliciously and tempt my eager teeth. O cruel power of wide deep thighs that make me furious, as they enclasp me and swing to and fro. With passion that grows pale and drives the flow of the fast fragrant blood of both of us, into the awful link that knits us close with chain electric. According to the Confessions, Crowley had temporarily belonged to an order known as the Celtic Church, a kind of Christianity blended with Celtic mysticism. I took my admission to the order with absolute seriousness, keeping vigil over my arms in a wood. The theory of the Celtic Church was that Romanism was a late heresy, or at least schism. The finest cathedral in the world was too small for the church, as Brand found. The mountains and forests were consecrated spots. The nearest thing to a material house would be a hermitage, such as one was likely to encounter while traveling on the quest. But all these ideals, seriously as I entertained them, were in the nature of reverie. In practical life, I was still passionately engaged in cleansing myself from the mire of Christianity by deliberate acts of sin and worldliness. I was so happy to be free from my past tyranny that I found continual joy in affirming my emancipation. At the age of 21, Crowley came into his father's inheritance, which essentially liberated him from all financial worry. This would allow him to indulge his pension for frequent travel, and it was while in Stockholm on holiday that he had one of two transformational experiences. Two main events were destined to put me on the road towards myself. The first took place in Stockholm, about midnight of December 31st, 1896. I was awakened to the knowledge that I possessed a magical means of becoming conscious of and satisfying a part of my nature which had up to that moment concealed itself from me. It was an experience of horror and pain combined with a certain ghostly terror, yet at the same time it was the key to the purest and holiest spiritual ecstasy that exists. At the time I was not aware of the supreme importance of the matter. It seemed to me little more than a development of certain magical processes with which I was already familiar. It was an isolated experience, not repeated until exactly twelve months later to the minute. But the second occasion quickened my spirit, always with the result of loosening the girders of the soul, so that my animal nature stood rebuked and kept silence in the presence of the imminent divinity of the Holy Ghost, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, yet blossoming in my soul, as if the entire forces of the universe, from all eternity, were concentrated and made manifest in a single rose." The second event took place in October 1897. The occasion was an attack of illness. It was nothing very serious, and I had long been accustomed to expect to die before I came of age. But for some reason or other, I found myself forced to meditate upon the fact of mortality. It was impressed upon me that I hadn't a moment to lose. There was no fear of death or of a possible hereafter, but I was appalled by the idea of the futility of all human endeavor. 
Suppose I said to myself that I make a great success in diplomacy and become ambassador to Paris. There was no good in that. I could not so much as remember the name of the ambassador a hundred years ago. And again, I wanted to be a great poet. Well, here I was in one of the two places in England that made a specialty of poets. Yet only an insignificant fraction of the 3,000 men in residence knew anything about so great a man as Aeschylus. I was not sufficiently enlightened to understand that the fame of the man had little or nothing to do with his real success. That the proof of his prowess lay in the invisible influence which he had had upon generations of men. My imagination went a step further. Suppose I did more than Caesar or Napoleon in one line, or than Homer and Shakespeare in the other. My work would be automatically cancelled when the globe became uninhabitable for man. I did not go into a definite trance in this meditation, but a spiritual consciousness was born in me, corresponding to that which characterizes the vision of the universal sorrow, as I learned to call it later on. In Buddhist phraseology, I perceive the first noble truth, everything is sorrow, but this perception was confined to the planes familiar to the normal human consciousness. The fatuity of any work based upon physical continuity was evident, but I had at this time no reason for supposing that the same criticism applied to any transcendental universe. I formulated my will somewhat as follows. I must find a material in which to work which is immune from the forces of change. I suppose that I still accepted Christian metaphysics in some sense or another. I had been satisfied to escape from religion to the world. I now found that there was no satisfaction here. I was not content to be annihilated. Spiritual facts were the only things worthwhile. Brain and body were valueless except as the instruments of the soul. The ordinary materialist usually fails to recognize that only spiritual affairs count for anything, even in the grossest concerns of life. The facts of a murder are nothing in themselves. They are only adduced in order to prove felonious intent. Material welfare is only important as assisting men towards a consciousness of satisfaction. From the nature of things, therefore, life is a sacrament. In other words, all our acts are magical acts. Our spiritual consciousness acts through the will, and its instruments upon material objects in order to produce changes which will result in the establishment of new conditions of consciousness, which we wish. That is the definition of magic, the obvious example of such an operation in its most symbolic and ceremonial form is the mass. The will of the priest transmutes a wafer in such wise that it becomes charged with the divine substance in so active a form that its physical injection gives spiritual nourishment to the communicant. Following these experiences, Crowley had abandoned his pursuit of a diplomatic career and dedicated himself to the acquisition of occult knowledge. In 1898, he obtained a copy of A.E. Waits, The Book of Black Magic and of Pax, which he ultimately found to be a disappointment. If the opposite of good exists at all, as it must, if good is to have any meaning, it must be exactly equal in quantity and quality to that good. On the Christian hypothesis, the reality of evil makes the devil equal to God. This is the heresy of Mainz, no doubt, but those who condemn Mainz must, despite themselves, implicitly affirm his theorem. 
I seem to have understood this instinctively, and since I must take sides with one party or the other, it was not difficult to make up my mind. The forces of good were those which had constantly oppressed me. I saw them daily destroying the happiness of my fellow men. Since, therefore, it was my business to explore the spiritual world, my first step must be to get into personal communication with the devil. I had heard a good deal about this operation in a vague way, but what I wanted was a manual of technical instruction. I devoted myself to black magic, and the bookseller, Dayton Bell, God bless him, immediately obliged with the book of black magic and of packs, which judging by the title was exactly what I needed. It was with intense disappointment and distrust that I read this compilation. The author was a pompous, ignorant, and affected dipsomaniac from America, and he treated his subject with the vulgarity of Jerome K. Jerome in the berry laring frivolity of a red-nosed music hall comedian making jokes about mothers-in-law and lodgers. It was, however, clear, even from the garbled text of the grimoires which he quoted, that the Diabolist had no conception of the Satan hymned by Milton or Huiz Mons. They were not protagonists in the spiritual warfare against restriction, against the oppressors of the human soul, the blasphemers, who denied the supremacy of the will of man. They merely aimed at achieving contemptible or malicious results, such as preventing a huntsman from killing game, finding buried treasure, bewitching the neighbor's cows, or acquiring the affection of a judge. For all their pretended devotion to Lucifer or Belial, they were sincere Christians in spirit, and inferior Christians at that, for their methods were puerile. The prayer book with its petitions for rain and success in battle was almost preferable. The one point of superiority was nevertheless cardinal. Their method was in intention scientific. That is, they proposed a definite technique by which a man could compel the powers of nature to do his bidding, no less than the engineer, the chemist, the electrician. There was none of the wheedling, bribery, and servility which is of the essence of that kind of prayer, which seeks material gratifications. Sir J. G. Fraser had pointed out this distinction in The Golden Bough. Magic he defines as science which does not work. It would be fairer to state this proposition in slightly different terms. Magic is science in pasa, a Latin phrase for not in actuality, but having a potential to exist. It was around this time that Crowley supposedly had his first same-sex experience. Some researchers speculate that this may have acted, at least partially, as a psycho-emotional catalyst for the profound transformational event he experienced in Stockholm. Prior, Crowley had numerous heterosexual experiences while at Cambridge. My sexual life was very intense. My relations with women were entirely satisfactory. They gave me the maximum of bodily enjoyment, and at the same time symbolized my theological notions of sin. Love was a challenge to Christianity. It was a degradation and a damnation. Swinburne had taught me the doctrine of justification by sin. Every woman that I met enabled me to affirm magically that I had defied the tyranny of the Plymouth Brethren and the Evangelicals. At the same time, women were the source of romantic inspiration. 
and their caresses emancipated me from the thraldom of the body. When I left them, I found myself walking upon air, with my soul free to wing its way through endless empyreans, and to express its godhead in untrammeled thought of transcendent sublimity. Expressed in language which combined the purest aspirations with the most majestic melodies. The women who Crowley frequently engaged in sexual relations with were mainly female prostitutes. He would be expelled from school for contracting gonorrhea, and later would contract syphilis as well. In 1897, he entered into a relationship with notorious Cambridge undergrad Herbert Charles Pollitt, a female impersonator and member of the Cambridge University Footlights Dramatic Club. They eventually broke up due to Crowley's increasing interest in the occult, which Pollitt did not share. Crowley seems to have been genuinely affected by the breakup, regretting it for years to come. In 1898, while in Switzerland, Crowley met a chemist by the name of Julian L. Baker. The two men had a shared interest in alchemy. Baker would eventually introduce Crowley to George Cecil Jones. I had a number of conversations with Julian Baker, who kept his promise to introduce me to a man who was a much greater magician than he was himself. This was a Welshman named George Cecil Jones. He possessed a fiery but unstable temper, was the son of a suicide, and bore a striking resemblance to many conventional representations of Jesus Christ. His spirit was both ardent and subtle. He was very widely read in magic, and being by profession an analytical chemist, was able to investigate the subject in a scientific spirit. As soon as I found that he really understood the matter, I went down to Basingstoke, where he lived, and more or less sat in his pocket. It was not long before I found out exactly where my destiny lay. Jones and Baker were both members of the secret society known as the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Hermeticism being an esoteric tradition whose roots can supposedly be traced back to a mysterious figure named Hermes Trimagestus, meaning thrice great Hermes. The Golden Dawn's membership roster included a number of notable artists and intellectuals of the day, including Dracula author Bram Stoker and the poet W.B. Yeats. Crowley and Yeats repelled one another, and Crowley would go on to describe the poet in the Confessions as a lank, disheveled demonologist. At the time, the Golden Dawn was under the leadership of a man by the name of Samuel Little McGregor Mathers. Mathers was a gifted linguist who had translated a number of occult works, including the Book of Abramelin and the infamous Ars Goetia, or Lesser Key of Solomon. On November 18, 1898, Aleister Crowley was initiated into the Outer Order of the Golden Dawn by Mathers himself, at the Order's Isis Urania Temple, located at London's Mark Mason's Hall. Crowley took the magical fraternal name Frater Perdurabo, Perdurabo supposedly meaning I shall endure to the end. At my initiation, I could have believed that these adepts deliberately masked their majesty, but there was no mistaking the character of the knowledge lecture, in which I had to be examined to entitle me to pass to the next grade. I had been most solemnly sworn to inviolable secrecy. The slightest breach of my oath meant that I should incur a deadly and hostile current of will, set in motion by the greatly honored chiefs of the Second Order. 
by the which I should fall slain or paralyzed as if blasted by the lightning flash. And now I was entrusted with some of these devastating though priceless secrets. They consisted of the Hebrew alphabet, the names of the planets with their attribution to the days of the week, and the ten sephiroth of the Kabbalah. I had known it all for months, and obviously any schoolboy in the lower fourth could memorize the whole lecture in twenty-four hours. Unsatisfied with the novice scraps offered at his initiation, Crowley doggedly set his sights on advancement to the second order, but that would require a months-long probationary period as well as the approval or invitation of Mathers. It was around this time that Crowley first met Alan Bennett. Bennett, along with Jones and Baker, were among the few in the order who Crowley seemed to have any genuine respect for. The rest he referred to as an abject assemblage of non-entities. In the spring of 1899, at some ceremony or other, I was aware of the presence of a tremendous spiritual and magical force. It seemed to me to proceed from a man sitting in the east, a man I had not seen before, but whom I knew must be very honored freighter Lehi Awar, called among men Alan Bennett. The fame of this man as a magician was already immense. He was esteemed second only to Mathers himself, and was perhaps even more feared. After the ceremony, we went into the outer room to unrobe. I was secretly anxious to be introduced to this formidable chief. To my amazement, he came straight to me, looked into my eyes and said in penetrating and, as it seemed, almost menacing tones, Little brother, you have been meddling with the Goetia. Goetia means howling. But it is the technical word employed to cover all the operations of that magic, which deals with gross, malignant, or unenlightened forces. I told him rather timidly that I had not been doing anything of the sort. In that case, he returned, the Goetia has been meddling with you. The aforementioned Ars Goetia, or Lesser Key of Solomon, is a book containing the names and attributes of 72 demons, a text not to be trifled with according to sincere practitioners of ceremonial magic. I should have explained that on deciding to join the order, I had taken a flat at 67 and 69 Chancery Lane. I had already determined to perform the operation of Abramelin but Jones had advised me to go through my initiation first. However, I began to busy myself with the preparations. Abramelin warns us that our families will object strenuously to our undertaking the operation. I resolved, therefore, to cut myself off absolutely from mine. So as I had to live in London, I took the flat under the name of Count Vladimir Svarov. As Jones remarked later, a wiser man would have called himself Smith. Alan Bennett was four years older than myself. His father, an engineer, had died when he was a boy. His mother had brought him up as a strict Catholic. He suffered acutely from spasmodic asthma. His cycle of life was to take opium for about a month, when the effect wore off so that he had to inject morphine. After a month of this, he had to switch to cocaine, which he took till he began to see things, and was then reduced to chloroform. I have seen him in bed for a week, only recovering consciousness sufficiently to reach for the bottle and sponge, 
asthma being a sthenic disease, he was then too weak to have it anymore, so he would gradually convalesce until, after a few weeks of freedom, the spasms would begin once more and he would be forced to renew the cycle of drugs. No doubt this constant suffering affected his attitude to life. He revolted against being an animal. He regarded the pleasures of living, and above all those of physical love, as diabolical illusions devised by the enemy of mankind in order to trick souls into accepting the curse of existence. I cannot forbear quoting one most remarkable incident. When he was about 16, the conversation in the laboratory where he was working turned upon childbirth. What he heard disgusted him. He became furiously angry and said that children were brought to earth by angels. The other students laughed at him and tried in vain to convince him. He maintained their theory to be a bestial blasphemy. The next day, one of the boys turned up with an illustrated manual of obstetrics. He could no longer doubt the facts, but his reaction was this. Did the omnipotent God, whom he had been taught to worship, devise so revolting and degrading a method of perpetuating the species? Then this God must be a devil, delighting in loathsomeness. To him, the existence of God was disproved from that moment. Bennett moved in with Crowley and in return instructed him on magic. Crowley reports making rapid progress under Bennett's tuition. The following anecdote is from the Confessions. I must relate one episode as throwing light upon my magical accomplishments and my ethical standards. Jones and I had come to the conclusion that Alan would die unless he went to live in a warmer climate. However, he was penniless, and we would not finance him for the reasons given above. The reason that Crowley is alluding to may be the ethical injunction against magicians accepting money in exchange for their knowledge. Instead, Jones and I evoke to visible appearance the spirit bureau of the Goetia, whose function is to heal the sick. We were partially successful, a helmeted head and the left leg being distinctly solid, though the rest of the figure was cloudy and vague. But the operation was, in fact, a success in the following manner. It is instructive to narrate this as showing the indirect and natural means by which the will attains its object. I am constrained to a seeming digression. Many authors insist on the importance of absolute chastity in the aspirant. For some months I had been disregarding this injunction with a seductive siren, whose husband was a colonel in India. Little by little I overcame my passion for her and we parted. She wrote to me frequently and tried to shake my resolution, but I stood firm. Shortly after the evocation of Bure, she wrote, begging me to call at her hotel. I cannot remember how it came into my mind to do what I did, but I went to see her. She begged me to come back to her and offered to do anything I wanted. I said to her, You're making a mess of your life by your selfishness. I will give you a chance to do an absolutely unfettered act. Give me a hundred pounds. I won't tell you whom it's for, except that it's not for myself. I have private reasons for not using my own money in this matter. If you give me this, it must be without hoping or expecting anything in return. She gave me the money. It paid Alan's passage to Ceylon, and saved to humanity one of the most valuable lives of our generation. So much for Bure.
As for the lady, she came to see me some time later, and I saw that I was myself acting selfishly and setting my spiritual welfare above her happiness. She had made a generous gesture. I could do no less. She agreed not to stand in the way of my performing the operation of Abramelin, but begged me to give her a living memory of our love. I agreed, and the sequel will be told in its place." In the following passage, Crowley explains how he had set up his apartment for the practice of both white and black magic. During this time, magical phenomena were of constant occurrence. I had two temples in my flat, one white, the walls being lined with six huge mirrors, each six feet by eight, the other black, a mere cupboard, in which stood an altar supported by the figure of a negro, standing on his hands. The presiding genius of this place was a human skeleton, which I fed from time to time with blood, small birds, and the like. The idea was to give it life, but I never got further than causing the bones to become covered with a viscous slime. Crowley and Bennett also experimented with expanding consciousness through drug use, and may or may not have also been experimenting sexually. Homosexuality was illegal in Britain at the time, and Crowley received word that the police might be watching the flat. Still awaiting invitation from Mathers to the Second Order of the Golden Dawn, Crowley had set out to perform one of the most daunting and demanding rituals in occult study, the Abramelin Operation. The Book of Abramelin, or as the Mathers translation is known, The Book of the Sacred Magic of Abramelin the Mage, is a text purportedly dating back to the 15th century that tells the story of how Abraham of Worms, Germany, learned a system of powerful Kabbalistic magic from an Egyptian mage, also named Abraham or Abramelin. The objective of the Abramelin operation is to come in contact with one's holy guardian angel. Crowley had been fascinated by the concept of the guardian angel since a close call he had as a child. In some interpretations, the holy guardian angel is seen as a representative of one's higher self or true divine nature. The ritual requires a prolonged period of daily prayer, fasting, and abstinence. Once the Holy Guardian Angel has been contacted, the next step is to subdue the powers of darkness with its help. Specifically, the magician is to evoke the twelve kings and dukes of hell and bind them so that their negative influence might be banished from his or her life. Once these entities are bound, they are to deliver unto the magician a number of familiar spirits and servitors that the magician can then employ to perform typical magical tasks, such as locating buried treasure, casting love charms, bestowing the power of flight and invisibility, etc., the ritual calls for a remote or secluded location where one can conduct the Abramelin operation undisturbed. To this end and this end alone, supposedly, Crowley purchased Boleskin House, a large manor overlooking the shore of Loch Ness. From the Confessions, the first essential is a house in a more or less secluded situation. There should be a door opening to the north from the room of which you make your oratory. Outside this door you construct a terrace covered with fine river sand. This ends in a lodge where the spirits may congregate. It would appear the simplest thing in the world for a man with 40,000 pounds who is ready to spend every penny of it on the achievement of his purpose to find a suitable house in a very few weeks. 
But a magical house is as hard to find as a magical book to publish. I scoured the country in vain. Not till the end of August 1899 did I find an estate which suited me. This was the manor of Boleskine in Abertaf, on the southeast side of Loch Ness. I think it may be of interest to note that according to at least one source, the fine sand on the terrace is apparently so the magician can monitor the footprints of the summoned entities. Ever flamboyant, Crowley took to wearing Highland dress and referring to himself as Laird Boleskine. In German language versions of the Book of Abermellon, the operation is to last for 18 months. In the Mathers translation, which some scholars criticize as being derived from a flawed source text, the initial period of the ritual is shortened to a period of only six months, still a considerable period of time given the strict requirements. Given Crowley's obsession with sex and growing pension for drugs, six months of abstinence and chastity would have been a considerable sacrifice. Crowley writes of the trouble he had acquiring an assistant for the Abermellon ritual, and the effect the magical working seems to have had on his surroundings and the minds of others. It is also very awkward for a man absorbed in intense magical effort to have to communicate with the external world about the business of everyday life. Jones did not see his way to come. So I asked Rocher, who consented, but before he had been there a month he found the strain intolerable. I came down to breakfast one morning, no Rocher. I asked the butler why he was absent. The man replied in surprise at my ignorance that Mr. Rocher had taken the early morning boat to Inverness. There was no word of explanation. I never saw him or heard of him for many years. And when we met, though absolutely friendly and even intimate, we never referred to the matter. One day I came back from shooting rabbits on the hill and found a Catholic priest in my study. He had come to tell me that my lodgekeeper, a total abstainer for twenty years, had been raving drunk for three days and had tried to kill his wife and children. I got an old Cambridge acquaintance to take Rocher's place, but he too began to show symptoms of panic fear. Meanwhile, other storms were brewing. The members of the London Temple, jealous of my rapid progress in the order, had refused to initiate me to the second order in London, though the chief himself had invited me. He therefore asked me to come to Paris, where he would himself confer the grade. I went, and on my return ten days later found that my protégé had also taken fright, fled to London, and hidden herself. Besides these comparatively explicable effects on human minds, there were numberless physical phenomena for which it is hard to account. While I was preparing the talismans, squares of vellum inscribed in Indian ink, a task which I undertook in the sunniest room in the house, I had to use artificial light even on the brightest days. It was a darkness which might almost be felt. The lodge and terrace, moreover, soon became peopled with shadowy shapes, sufficiently substantial as a rule to be almost opaque. To those who believe in magic, one of the most dangerous things a practitioner can supposedly do is to abandon a working in progress, especially without performing some sort of banishing ritual to ensure that whatever may have been summoned or conjured is sent back from whence it came. 
Some like filmmaker and occultist Kenneth Anger think Crowley made a grave mistake when he interrupted the Abramelin operation by traveling to Paris to answer Mather's summons. Crowley had pledged his loyalty and financial resources to the embattled Mathers. In return, Mathers personally initiated Crowley into the adeptus minor grade of the Second Order. Crowley writes in the Confessions, Early in 1900, I applied to the Second Order in London for the documents to which my initiation in Paris entitled me. They were refused in terms which made it clear that the London body was an open revolt. Members of the London Lodge had grown tired of what they saw as Mather's autocratic rule, and many also had taken a dislike to Crowley, who they saw as progressing too rapidly. Crowley and his mistress and fellow initiate Elaine Simpson, under direct instruction from Mathers, traveled to Blythe Road in West Kensington in an attempt to seize the vault of the Adept's temple space from the mutineers. Playing the part of Laird Boleskine, Crowley, accompanied by Simpson, talked his way into the building and attempted to bar the entrance of the other lodge members under threat of downgrading their rank. Eventually, Crowley was ejected by the law. The court had ruled in favor of the London Lodge due to the fact that they had been paying for the space's rent. Both Crowley and Mathers were now considered outsiders. As for Boleskin, it's reported to have been plagued by a series of tragedies and strange events, and is still avoided by superstitious locals. In the 1970s, it was purchased by Led Zeppelin guitarist Jimmy Page, an avid collector of Crowley memorabilia. One of the stranger theories surrounding Boleskin is that Loch Ness monster sightings may be a result of supernatural forces unleashed by Crowley's abandoned ritual. Upon returning to Paris to report his progress to Mathers, Crowley overheard two guests, fellow members of the Order, discussing how they had just returned from Mexico City. Taken by his characteristic wanderlust and a desire to climb the volcanic mountain terrain, Crowley decided to travel to Mexico via New York. Put off by the artificial skyline and oppressive heat, Crowley only stayed in New York for three days. Till this time, I had never been in any reputedly hot country. I was appalled to find New York intolerable. I filled a cold bath and got in and out of it at intervals till eleven at night. When I crawled panting through the roasting streets and consumed ice water, ice watermelon, ice cream, and iced coffee, good God, I said to myself, and this is merely New York, what must Mexico be like? Crowley proceeded by train, eventually arriving in Mexico. I engaged a young Indian girl to look after me and settle down to steady work at magic. I had an introduction to an old man named Don Jesus Medina, a descendant of the great Duke of Armada fame, and one of the highest chiefs of Scottish Rite Freemasonry. My Kabbalistic knowledge being already profound by current standards, he thought me worthy of the highest initiation in his power to confer. Special powers were obtained in view of my limited sojourn, and I was pushed rapidly through and admitted to the 33rd and last degree before I left the country. Crowley also established a new magical order of his own while in Mexico, which he called the Lamp of Invisible Light. He named Don Jesus its first high priest. He also wrote a play based on Wagner's opera Tannhauser, and a series of poems which he would publish in 1905 as oracles. Crowley also rendezvoused with his mountaineering friend Oscar Eckenstein, and the two climbed a number of mountains. One climb had to be abandoned due to a volcanic eruption. 
Regarding his obsession with magic, Eckenstein, a rugged outspoken type, unintimidated by Crowley, told his friend that he should stop wasting time on such rubbish. Also while in Mexico, Crowley claimed to have successfully used magical means to become invisible. I worked also at acquiring the power of invisibility. I reached a point when my physical reflection in a mirror became faint and flickering. It gave very much the effect of the interrupted image of the cinematograph in its early days. But the real secret of invisibility is not concerned with the laws of optics at all. The trick is to prevent people from noticing you when they would normally do so. In this I was quite successful. For example, I was able to take a walk in the street in a golden crown and a scarlet robe without attracting attention. In 1902, Crowley had arrived back in Paris. He had befriended the English painter, Gerald Kelly, and through this friendship, Crowley became, for a time, something of a fixture in the Paris art scene. He supposedly even became an acquaintance of the legendary sculptor Auguste Rodin. In 1907, he would publish a collection of poems entitled Rodin and Rhyme, inspired by the sculptor's work. Crowley had also made the acquaintance of the author William Somerset Maugham. Maugham would use Crowley as the model for his book, The Magician. I like Maugham well enough personally, though many people resent a curious trick which he has of saying spiteful things about everybody. I always feel that he, like myself, makes such remarks without malice, for the sake of their cleverness. I was not in the least offended by the attempts of the book to represent me as, in many ways, the most atrocious scoundrel, for he had done more than justice to the qualities of which I was proud, and despite himself he had been compelled, like Balaam, to prophesy concerning me. He attributed to me certain characteristics which he meant to represent as abominable, but were actually superb. In 1903, Crowley wed Gerald Kelly's sister, Rose Edith Kelly. The marriage took place a day after they met. It started out as a marriage of convenience meant to rescue Rose from an arranged marriage, but Crowley, to his own surprise, would actually end up falling in love with her. He would describe her as possessing the traits of both a perfect wife and a perfect mistress. But the hasty wedding put a serious strain on Crowley's friendship with the painter. We were completely at a loose end. I was to go back to Boleskine, of course, but there were some hours before the train started. She was to go back to Strathpeffer, but at this moment Gerald Kelly burst into the room, his pale face drawn with insane passion. He was probably annoyed at his stupidity in not having realized that the announcement of our engagement 19 hours earlier had been serious. On learning that we were already married, he aimed a violent blow at me. It missed me by about a yard. I am ashamed to say that I could not repress a quiet smile. If he had not been out of his mind, his action would have been truly courageous, for compared with me, he was a shrimp. And while I was one of the most athletic men in the country, his strength had been impaired by a sedentary stupor and loose living in Paris. Crowley and Rose embarked on a whirlwind honeymoon tour which Crowley described as a period of uninterrupted debauchery. We swooped down on Marseille, perched on the terrace of Bertolini's at Naples, and picked up a few crumbs. Our first breathing place was Cairo. It was one of the extravagances of our passion that suggested our spending a night together in the king's chamber of the Great Pyramid. It was the gesture of the male showing off his plumage. I wanted my wife to see what a great magician I was. We went accordingly after dinner with candles. 
More from habit than anything else, as I imagine, I had with me a small notebook of Japanese vellum, in which were written my principal invocations, etc. Among these was a copy of the preliminary invocation of the Goetia. We reached the king's chamber after dismissing the servants at the foot of the grand gallery. By the light of a single candle placed on the edge of the coffer, I began to read the invocation, but as I went on I noticed that I was no longer stooping to hold the page near the light. I was standing erect, yet the manuscript was not less but more legible. Looking about me I saw that the king's chamber was glowing with a soft light, which I immediately recognized as the astral light. The king's chamber was aglow as if with the brightest tropical moonlight. The pitiful dirty yellow flame of the candle was like a blasphemy and I put it out. The astral light remained during the whole of the invocation and for some time afterwards, though it lessened in intensity as we composed ourselves to sleep. For the rest, the floor of the king's chamber is particularly uncompromising. In sleeping out on rocks, one can always accommodate oneself more or less to the local irregularities, but the king's chamber reminded me of Brand, and I must confess to having passed a very uncomfortable night. I fear my dalliance had corrupted my Roman virtue. In the morning, the astral light had completely disappeared, and the only sound was the flitting of the bats. Rose and Alistair had entered Cairo in aristocratic flair, garbed in flamboyant eastern dress, masquerading as a royal couple, a prince and princess. They rented an apartment in which Crowley set up a temple. While there he experimented with invoking Egyptian deities and studied Arabic and Islamic mysticism. Rose began acting delirious as if she had become a conduit for the gods or some supernatural force. She mentioned the god Horus and uttered the cryptic sentence, They are waiting for you. According to the confessions, Crowley was skeptical and yet perplexed. In her normal state, she, Rose, supposedly knew next to nothing about Egyptology or arcane matters. But was her bullseye a fluke? Her mention of Horus gave me a chance to cross-examine her. How do you know that it is Horus who is telling you all this? Identify him. Uarda, Crowley's name for Rose, supposedly Arabic for Rose, knew less Egyptology than 99 Kyrene Taurus out of 100. Her answers were overwhelming. The odds against her being right were one in many million. I allowed her to go on. She instructed me how to invoke Horus. The instructions were, from my point of view, pure rubbish. I suggested amending them. She emphatically refused to allow a single detail to be altered. She promised success, whatever that might mean. On Saturday or Sunday, if I had any aspiration left at all, it was to attain samadhi, which I had not yet ever done. She promised that I should do so. I agreed to carry out her instructions, avowedly in order to show her that nothing could happen if you broke all the rules. On some day before March 23rd, Uwata identified the particular god with whom she was in communication, from a stele in the Bullock Museum which we had never visited. It is not the ordinary form of Horus, but Ra Huakuit. I was no doubt very much struck by the coincidence that the exhibit, a quite obscure and undistinguished stele, bore the catalog number 666, but I dismissed it as an obvious coincidence. March 19th, I wrote out the ritual and did the invocation with little success. I was put off not only by my skepticism in the absurdity of the ritual, but by having to do it in robes at an open window on a street at noon. She allowed me to make the second attempt at midnight. 
March 20th, the invocation was a startling success. I was told that the equinox of the gods has come. That is, that a new epoch had begun. I was to formulate a link between the solar spiritual force and mankind. On April 8th, Crowley supposedly heard a disembodied voice claiming to be Iowas, the messenger of Horus, or Huor Par Karat. Crowley had finally contacted his holy guardian angel. He wrote down everything this voice dictated to him. Over a period of three days, he entitled the resulting text, Liber al Valigus, the Book of the Law. This would be the foundation for Crowley's religion, Thelema, from the Greek for will. The supreme moral commandment, do what thou wilt, shall be the whole of the law. Detractors interpret this as Crowley suggesting that anything goes without any moral consideration. Proponents suggest that it's something more along the lines of Joseph Campbell's edict of follow your bliss, that a person should earnestly endeavor to discover who and what they are and then doggedly pursue the will of their true self. The relationship between McGregor Mathers and Crowley had deteriorated. Mathers refused to return a number of items to Crowley, and Crowley even believed Mathers was trying to attack him remotely with magic. There's one very fanciful tale in The Confessions, which describes Crowley being assaulted by some kind of vampiric succubus, an old crone in the guise of a beautiful young woman. Crowley supposedly turned her own current of evil against her, and she reverted to her true form. On July 28, 1905, Rose gave birth to their first child, a daughter they named Nuit Ma Ahathor Hecate Sappho Jezebel Lilith. An associate of Crowley would suggest when the child unfortunately died that it was due to her extreme nomenclature. Crowley had decided to attempt Mount Kanchenjunga in the Himalayas of Nepal. His good friend Eckenstein refused to take part. Kanchenjunga had a reputation as the world's most treacherous mountain, and Eckenstein distrusted one of the team members, describing him as reckless and predicting the attempt would end in disaster. The team was comprised of three Swiss climbers, an inexperienced Italian, and a large number of native porters and servants. His fellow climbers accused Crowley of being too controlling, and the Swiss disapproved of the way he treated the native porters. The team mutinied and headed back down the mountain despite Crowley's warning that the conditions were too treacherous. Ultimately, one Swiss climber and several porters would die. The Kanchenjunga incident would ruin Crowley's reputation in the mountaineering community, with many blaming him directly for the deaths that occurred during the ill-fated climb. Some of the more lurid and spurious accounts of the incident portray Crowley abandoning the climb and leaving the other team members to their own devices. At least one even depicts him as sipping tea as the men cried for help, intentionally choosing not to come to their aid. How valid these accounts are, I'm not sure. Around his 30th birthday, Crowley met up with Rose in Calcutta and embarked on a trek across China with their baby girl, Nuit. Crowley eventually parted ways with his wife and child in Hanoi and headed for Shanghai, where he supposedly took up with his old flame Elaine Simpson, who expressed a keen interest in the Book of the Law. The two ex-lovers spent 12 days together practicing magic. Crowley received news that his two-year-old daughter, Nuit, had died of typhoid in Rangoon. Crowley would turn his anger towards Rose, blaming her for the girl's death, either on account of her alcoholism or neglecting to clean the child's bottle. In researching this audio documentary, I drew from several sources, Crowley's own autobiography, The Confessions, various online articles and resources, and three video documentaries. 
One of these documentaries, the lengthiest by far, entitled In Search of the Great Beast 666, features narration interspersed with actors reading or reciting written dialogue. It's hard to tell whether the words are the work of screenwriters or direct quotes from the people being portrayed. I tried researching some of the dialogue and had trouble matching it up with historical quotes from people who knew Crowley. Having read the confessions, I can at least vouch that much of what is said by the actor portraying Crowley is taken directly from that work. I'm offering this disclaimer because of the seriousness of some of the accusations I had trouble verifying. The following is verbatim from the actress portraying Rose Kelly. We reunited at Boleskin some months later. And there I remained for the next two years or so, a victim of his violent and vicious outbursts. He even threw my mother down the stairs on one occasion. Alistair wanted me to continue helping him with his magic work, but I had lost interest and that just made matters worse. He was a cruel man bringing his mistresses home. He would sexually and sadistically abuse them, whilst I would be forced to watch. On occasions they would be in our bed, whilst I would be hung by my ankles in the closet. Ironically, during that period, I gave birth once again to a beautiful daughter. We named her Lola Zaza. The couple did indeed have a second daughter named Lola Zaza, and Crowley does have a reputation as having been something of a sadist and a masochist. But I can't say for certain how genuine the allegations in the above excerpt are, specifically the hanging rose by her ankles or throwing his mother-in-law down the stairs. But I did find the following passage in the Confessions. On the top of all this came the discovery that my wife was a hereditary dipsomaniac. When our baby was born, it lay almost lifeless for more than three days, and at three weeks old nearly died of bronchitis. I had the sense to send for oxygen before the doctor arrived, and this precaution probably saved the child's life. I fought like a fiend against death. The doctor gave the strictest orders that not more than one person should be in the sick room at one time. My mother-in-law refused to obey. I thought I had suffered enough. It was her hypocrisy that had sought to justify her tippling by giving her children a share of the champagne, and thus implanted in Rose the infernal impulse, which had wrecked her life and love, and mine. I made no bones about it. I took the hag by the shoulders and ran her out of the flat, assisting her down the stairs with my boot, lest she should misinterpret my meaning. In 1909, Rose and Alistair would divorce on the legal grounds of Alistair's own adultery. Her condition deteriorated, and in 1911, Crowley would have her committed to an asylum due to alcohol dementia. She spent the rest of her life there, passing away in 1932. Between 1906 and 1909, Crowley made a number of new acquaintances. One was a military man, at the time holding the rank of captain, by the name of John Frederick Charles Fuller. He had been an admirer of Crowley and wrote a review of his work entitled A Star in the West. Decades later, Fuller would join the so-called Nordic League, a far-right organization in the United Kingdom, which sought to promote Nazism. He often praised Hitler and was even an honored guest at the dictator's 50th birthday parade. Around this time, Crowley was also hired by George Montague Bennett, the Earl of Tankerville. The Earl wanted Crowley to protect him from magical attack. Crowley surmised that Bennett was suffering from cocaine-induced paranoia and took him on holiday to recover. Crowley and his old friend and mentor, Cecil Jones, continued performing rituals from the Book of Abramel and the Mage. 
Consuming heavy amounts of hashish, Crowley claimed to have attained samadhi, a state of meditative consciousness in Eastern tradition. This led him to write an essay entitled The Psychology of Hashish. Crowley and Jones, along with the aid of the aforementioned Captain Fuller, decided to found a new organization meant to be a successor to the Golden Dawn. It was to be called the AA, the Silver Star, or Astrin Argon in Greek, or Argentium Astrum in Latin, a syncretic system borrowing heavily from the Golden Dawn and blending aspects of Theravada Buddhism, Vedantic Yoga, ceremonial magic, and Kabbalah. Crowley's funds were diminishing rapidly. He had gone through several inheritances and was now finally running out of money. Despite the ethical prohibition in esoteric circles on accepting money in exchange for magical knowledge, in 1907 Crowley began taking in students who could provide him with much-needed funding. Crowley took on the young poet Victor Newberg as his disciple. The following passage from the Confession smacks of a kind of droll anti-Semitism. Fuller had met a youth named Newberg, Victor Benjamin of that ilk, who was at Trinity College, Cambridge, and knew my work. Having to go to Cambridge one day on some business or other, I thought I would look the lad up. I was not sure of the name, and there were several similar Bergs in the university register. But having drawn my bow at a venture, the first arrow struck the king of Israel between the harness at the very first shot. I use the words King of Israel advisedly, for Newberg was certainly a most distinguished specimen of that race. He was a mass of nervous excitement, having reached the age of 25 without learning how to manage his affairs. He had been prevented from doing so, in fact, by all sorts of superstitions about the terrible danger of leading a normal, wholesome life. The neuroses thus created had expressed themselves in a very feeble trickle of poetry, and a very vehement gust of fads. He was an agnostic, a vegetarian, a mystic, a Tolstoyan, and several other things all at once. Crowley and Newberg, who had been initiated into the AA as Freighter Omnia Vimcam, would enter into a sadomasochistic, yet nevertheless still somewhat sentimental, master-servant relationship. Crowley took the young poet with him to Algiers, and the two set off into the Sahara, stopping at oasis villages and performing Enochian magic rituals, in which Newberg acted as a scribe recording the results. If the aforementioned documentary In Search of the Great Beast 666 is to be believed, Crowley took to wearing a turban and a large sapphire ring, walking a shaven-headed Newberg on a chain leash in effort to give the impression of a great magician. The two men took part in a ritual to summon the demon Karanzon. I knew that even my holiest, mine inmost self, might not protect me from the grim abominations of the abyss. We therefore changed our magical procedure. We went far out from the city into a hollow among the dunes. There we made a circle to protect the scribe in a triangle wherein the abyss might manifest sensibly. We killed three pigeons, one at each angle, that their blood might be a basis whereon the forces of evil might build themselves bodies. The name of the dweller in the abyss is Karanzon, but he is not really an individual. The abyss is empty of being. It is filled with all possible forms, each equally inane, each therefore evil in the only true sense of the word. That is meaningless but malignant, in so far as it craves to become real. These forms swirl senselessly into haphazard heaps like dust devils. 
and each such chance aggregation asserts itself to be an individual and shrieks, I am I, though aware all the time that its elements have no true bond, so that the slightest disturbance dissipates the delusion just as a horseman meeting a dust devil brings it in showers of sand to the earth. Karanzan appeared in many physical forms to Omnia Vincam. Will I abode apart in my magical robe with its hood drawn over my face, I took the form of myself, of a woman whom Newberg loved, of a serpent with a human head, etc. The story goes that Crowley brazenly stepped outside the designated area of the protective sigil, as if intentionally opening himself up to possession. The demon Karanzon attacked Newberg, gnashing at him with its sharp fangs, until the young poet bested the entity with a magical dagger, and it slithered away. It was during this trip with Newberg that Crowley would come to realize the power of what would later be termed sex magic, the utilization of sexual arousal and climax to achieve magical ends. Supposedly, Crowley was the passive partner. Crowley published a biannual magazine entitled The Equinox. It was the official publication of the AA. Mathers sought an injunction barring the publication of the third edition of the Equinox, claiming that it contained confidential information pertaining to the Golden Dawn. Crowley appealed, and the court ruled in his favor. The issue in question was released the very next day, alongside a copy of the London Evening News with a front-page story that read, Secrets of the Golden Dawn. An attractive Australian musician named Lila Waddle joined the AA and she and Crowley instantly became lovers. In another attempt to replenish his diminishing funds, Crowley decided to put on a series of public rituals at Caxton Hall, to which he would charge admission. He and Newberg would perform the rites of Eleusis over seven consecutive nights while Lila Waddle played the violin. A publication called The Looking Glass gave the performance a scathing review and used the article as an opportunity to imply a homosexual relationship between Crowley and Cecil Jones. Jones attempted to sue but lost at least in part due to Crowley's sinister reputation. The defending barrister referred to Crowley as a loathsome and abominable creature. Crowley lost a number of donors who had been funding the AA and the Equinox, including Captain Fuller. He decided to step down from the leadership of the AA with the aspiration of establishing yet another new magical order. Prior to the performance at Caxton Hall, Crowley had put on another public performance which he called the Rites of Artemis. It was more positively received by the press, and supposedly so the story goes, attendees were given fruit punch laced with peyote to enhance the experience. During a brief period of separation from Lila Waddle, Crowley had engaged in a relationship with a woman named Mary Desty, who he considered his new Scarlet Woman. She shared his passion for the occult, and Crowley believed that during drug-induced hysteria, she acted as a conduit for a secret chief named Abeldees. In 1912, Crowley published The Book of Lies. A biographer named Lawrence Sutton referred to it as his greatest success in merging his talents as poet, scholar, and magus. Theodore Rus, the German head of the OTO, the Order Templi Orientis, accused Crowley of publishing some of the Order's secrets. Crowley was more intrigued than offended, for the similarities were supposedly coincidental. The two men ended up becoming friends. In fact, Roos ended up appointing Crowley, the head of the organization's British branch. 
Crowley and Lila were both initiated into the OTO at a ceremony in Berlin. Crowley took the magical name Baphomet and was made Grand Master General of Ireland and all the Britons. Crowley used the OTO to spread the word of Thelema. He required every member of the British Lodge to possess a copy of the Book of the Law. As bizarre as it sounds, in 1913, Crowley and Lila traveled to Moscow with a troupe of dancing girls entitled the Ragged Ragtime Girls, with Crowley acting as the group's producer. Crowley described it as a coarse, vulgar, sickening business. His time in Moscow wasn't a complete loss. He wrote some of his better-known works there, including the Gnostic Mass, still performed to this day by OTO members around the world, and the Hymn to Pan. In 1914, Crowley and Newberg settled into a Paris apartment. They performed a six-week operation entitled The Paris Working. The ritual involved heavy drug use, and the goal was to invoke the gods Mercury and Jupiter. The ritual also involved acts of sex magic performed between Crowley and Newberg. After The Paris Working, Newberg finally began to distance himself from Crowley. The documentary In Search of the Great Beast 666 has the actor portraying Crowley reciting a rather disturbing passage. I was able to trace it back to Lieber 415, or the Paris working. The supreme right would be to bring about a climax in the death of a victim. By this right one would attain the summit of magical art. Even better would be to slay a girl, preferably a willing victim, after violating her. She should be cut into nine pieces. These should not be eaten, but divided as follows. Head, arms, legs, and quadrisected trunk. The names of the gods appropriate are to be written on the skin. The arms are then to be flayed and burnt in honor of Pan or Vesta. The legs, treated in the same manner, should be offered to Priapus, Hermes, or Juno. The right shoulder is sacred to Jupiter. The left buttock to Venus. The head should not be flayed, but burnt simply, and that in honor either of Juno or Minerva. The right should not be employed on ordinary occasions, but rarely, and then for great purposes. It should not be disclosed to any man. According to the documentary, Newberg and Crowley discussed the right, but decided it was probably black magic, and never discussed it again. In 1914, war had broken out. Crowley reached out to various branches of the British government, offering his assistance. They declined. Crowley assumed it was due to his sinister reputation. He decided to head to America with hopes that rental income and book writing residuals would keep him afloat. He left for the U.S. with a sum of 50 pounds and his magical texts and documents. He would stay for the next five years. For the first time in his life, he found that he didn't have the money to maintain his lavish lifestyle. He discovered that his reputation had preceded him. An article in World Magazine had covered his exploits in detail and described him as intensely magnetic, attracting or repelling people with equal violence. There was a story concerning Crowley in America that I was unable to verify, but it does seem to surface in a number of sources. Supposedly, he was sodomized by two male strangers and performed oral sex on another one night in a Turkish bathhouse in New York. He apparently considered these acts of sex magic. Another story is that he supposedly filed his teeth down and would give women what was known as the serpent's kiss, gently kissing the hand or wrist and drawing blood. This does seem to be substantiated by at least one woman in her memoirs. Crowley happened by chance to meet a German-American poet by the name of George Sylvester Verick. Verick had been working for the German Office of Propaganda in America. Crowley told him he was a man of Irish descent who resented British imperialism. 
As a result, Varick employed him. On July 3, 1915, he and Lila traveled to the feet of the Statue of Liberty, where Crowley was to make an anti-British speech. He describes the episode thusly in the Confessions. I did not feel that I was advancing in the confidence of the Germans. I got no secrets worth reporting to London, and I was not at all sure whether the cut of my clothes had not outweighed the eloquence of my conversation. I thought I would do something more public. I wrote a long parody on the Declaration of Independence and applied it to Ireland. I invited a young lady violinist who has some Irish blood in her, behind the more evident stigmata of the ornithorhynchus and the wombat, adding to our number about four other debauched persons on the verge of delirium tremens, we went out in a motorboat before dawn on the 3rd of July to the rejected Statue of Commerce for the Suez Canal, which Americans fondly supposed to be liberty enlightening the world. There I read my Declaration of Independence. I threw an old envelope into the bay, pretending that it was my British passport. We hoisted the Irish flag. The violinist played the wearing of the green. The crews of the interned German ships chaired us all the way up to the Hudson, probably because they estimated the degree of our intoxication with scientific precision. Finally, we went to Jack's for breakfast and home to sleep it off. The New York Times gave us three columns and Varick was distinctly friendly. Over in England, there was consternation. I cannot think what had happened to their sense of humor. To pretend to take it seriously was natural enough in New York, where everybody is afraid of the Irish, not knowing what they may do next, but London was having bombs dropped on it. There was, however, one person in England who knew me, also a joke when he saw it, the Honorable A.B., my old friend aforesaid. Owing to the confusion inevitably attached to the mud with which we always begin muddling through, this gentleman had been inadvertently assigned to the intelligence department. When he saw the report in the New York Times, he wrote to me about it. I knew he would not talk. I knew he would not blunder. I wrote back explaining my position which he immediately understood and approved. But intelligence such as his is a rare accident in an intelligence department. He could not authorize me to go ahead with appealing to his superiors. He put the case before them. They were quite unable to understand that I was merely in a position to get into the full confidence of the Germans if I had the right sort of assistance. Varick also employed Crowley to write anti-British propaganda for a pro-German publication called The Fatherland. He did so under the names Alistair Crowley, Baphomet, the Master Therian, and Lord Boleskin. In one letter, he complained that the Germans had missed his aunt's house and urged them to try again, providing the proper address. Crowley tried to assert that he was actually trying to undermine the Germans, but he was considered a traitor back home. Although living in poverty and humiliation, Crowley had finally managed to obtain the grade of ninth degree magus while in America. He also took up painting. He published a newspaper ad looking for models to paint. Looking for dwarves? Hunchbacks, tattooed women, Harrison Fisher girls, freaks of all sorts, colored women only if exceptionally ugly or deformed, to pose for artist. Apply by letter with photograph. Near the end of Crowley's phase in America, he met 19-year-old Leah Hersig. He consecrated her as his next scarlet woman through an act of sex magic. She had a two-year-old son and soon fell pregnant with a child of Crowley's. He employed her friend Nanette as their nanny and soon she fell pregnant as well. Crowley had decided to dedicate a small temple to Thelema. Consulting the I Ching, he chose the location of Cefalu on Sicily, Italy. He began renting an old villa and named it the Abbey of Thelema. 
With him were Leah, Nanette, and the three children. Crowley had been prescribed heroin for asthma. By this period, he was firmly in the grip of addiction. He was also doing cocaine, and the drug had begun to erode his nasal cavity. The abbey began to become unsanitary, with wild dogs and cats wandering in and out. In October of 1920, Poupe, Crowley's daughter with her sake, died. Despite the dreary picture this paints, the Abbey actually continued to draw new followers, among them silent film actress Jane Wolfe. Nanette had become pregnant again, and Hersig miscarried shortly after Poupe's death. Crowley believed that, according to Nanette's diary, she had used black magic against him and Leah to cause the miscarriage. He was sickened and incensed. He performed an exorcism in the temple to cleanse it of her evil influence. Crowley and his Thelemite followers supposedly engaged in regular drug-fueled sex magic rituals. One of the most lurid tales to come out of the Abbey is that supposedly Crowley wanted Leia to take part in a ritual in which she was made to copulate with a goat, which would be killed at the moment of sexual climax. If the story is to be believed, it was attempted but was ultimately unsuccessful. In 1922, Crowley and Hersig traveled to London in hopes of raising money. Crowley pitched his autobiography to a number of publishers but was rejected. He pitched Diary of a Drug Fiend instead and one publisher accepted, paying him in advance. The book was received with controversy. The headline in the Sunday Express read, A Book for Burning. A week later, they followed it up with a front-page story including a picture of the shaven-headed Crowley and the title Alistair Crowley, Orgies in Sicily. Crowley reveled in the reaction and hoped it would bring new paying followers. Indeed, more followers were attracted to the Abbey, among them a young Oxford grad named Raoul Loveday and his wife Betty May. Raoul was devoted to Crowley, but Betty May was skeptical and disliked life at the commune. She would later claim that they were given razors and made to cut themselves every time they said the word I, which only Crowley was allowed to utter. Raoul supposedly drank water from a tainted stream and had fallen ill, eventually developing a liver infection. According to Betty, he was also made to drink a large amount of cat's blood during a ritual, further worsening his condition. Eventually, he became so ill he could barely move. Betty wanted to contact the British consulate, but was urged not to. Leia made her sign a paper stating she wouldn't contact the authorities or she and Raoul, who at this time weren't able to fend for themselves, would be expelled from the commune. A few days later, Raoul Loveday died and was buried outside the walls of the town. Crowley performed the burial ceremony. Betty finally fled the abbey and upon her return to England was interviewed by the Sunday press. Their competitor also published articles on the story, one which dubbed Crowley the wickedest man in the world. What was left of Crowley's reputation was utterly destroyed. Eventually, the Italian authorities caught on, and under order from Mussolini, Crowley was served with a deportation notice. Absent his leadership, the abbey closed and remains abandoned and rotting to this day. Hersig eventually distanced herself from Crowley, denouncing him, and according to some accounts, returned to America and became a devout Roman Catholic. Crowley lived hand-to-mouth, being lucky enough to befriend a socialite or take on a wealthy student here and there. Elderly and drug-addicted, he moved from one temporary lodging to another, eventually ending up in a boarding house in Hastings. In 1934, he began a libel case against a writer who had accused him of being a black magician. Examples of Crowley's pornographic poetry were read aloud in court, and Raoul Loveday's widow, Betty, gave evidence against him. Crowley lost the case and was rendered bankrupt. The judge declared that in 40 years of justice, he had never heard of such wickedness. 
Still possessing something of his old charisma, a young woman named Deidre McKellen approached him after court and told him she wanted to have his child. Crowley agreed they had a son named Alistair Ataturk. Crowley mused to himself, have I ever done anything of value or am I a mere trifler? He slipped into a coma and died. Some say the final words of the great beast were, I am perplexed. Deirdre, the mother of his son, claims that at the moment of his passing, the curtains blew inward, and there was a peal of thunder, as if he was being welcomed by the gods, if you believe in that sort of thing. One of the headlines upon news of his death simply read, Farewell, 666. <laughs>